This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. the trade war, Taylor, it feels like we're getting to this moment where folks are starting to realize that this isn't just about cows and soybeans. It's actually about things that we use in our everyday lives very directly. So let's talk about that with Sarah McGregor. She is senior trade editor for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C., normally based out in L.A. She's all over the place trying to get a sense uh, with her team of exactly what this all looks like. Sarah, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So talk about this story that you wrote. Even eateries with $850 a bottle of vinegar are feeling the bite of trade wars. What'd you find? So um, I think, you know, I just wanted to talk to to a few people about what the impact of, of the trade war is for them. And it all started with a conversation I had with a, a woman out in L.A. who said, yeah, our, our dinner parties are about to get more expensive. My my friends and I have been talking about that. And the idea is now with these um, tariffs that the U.S. is putting on European goods, it's going to hit some pretty gourmet luxury items like um, Spanish olives and French wine. And, you know, this is a little bit different than what we've seen from the, the trade war so far with China. Those, those tariffs have hit a lot of imports things that companies buy to to make a final product you know some consumer goods but this is uh this is sort of a different different tack now with with europe and i think you know it just illustrates the fact that as, as you said you know everyday consumers are the ones who are going to be hit in the end by, by these tariffs because as with these european goods it's a lot of items you can't substitute you know people who like french wine you could get a california wine but it just doesn't taste the same it's not at the same price point necessarily so um you know you're kind of left with fewer options or you've got to pay the price of the tariffs. And Sarah, I love that you talk about how it will hit the consumer because in your story, you really differentiate the types of consumer. So if I'm going and ordering an $850 uh, bottle of wine. As or you do. I mean, that's how Taylor rolls. I think we can all agree to that. Oh, if only, Sarah. So if I'm doing that, I probably won't feel it. But, you know, perhaps someone like you, me, Jason, you know, sort of the average Joe wants to get a block of cheese at the grocery store. Those will be the consumers that are really hit the hardest. Absolutely. And one restaurant owner I spoke to who imports mostly European goods, he has a French eatery, said, you know, someone who, who's already rich and will pay for that expensive bottle of this or that, they might not notice a little extra on their bill. These are 20 25% tariffs that we're talking about. So they're pretty steep. Um, but, you know, someone who just comes in and treats themselves to a little piece of, of cheese from France or, or wherever it is, they may notice that the 25% increase and actually decide, okay, I'm, you know, that's not worth it anymore for me. It's a treat. But now it's suddenly turned into this luxurious purchase. And, um, you know, it's just left all these owners in, in a bit of a bind. And what's, you know, what's also interesting is that people like um, the, 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 uh, restaurant owner that I spoke to, he had a shipment on the water. So when it clears customs, he'll owe whatever the tariff is at that moment. And so he doesn't know what he's going to pay yet on his latest shipment because, you know, until it crosses the border, you, he can't really get a sense. And so the uncertainty from this really stretches from, uh, you know, from the big big companies, you know, whether you're Walmart to, to the smaller restaurant owners. And so, Sarah, you're 
talking with your team all the time about not just these on the ground issues, but also just the state of play in the trade war. As we go into the weekend on the various fronts, where are we? What's next? So I'm actually at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund meetings right now, and obviously the trade wars are um, having a big effect. We see the sort of the Brexit deal on the way to a deal. We see U.S.-China have their trade breakthrough. But what I'm really hearing is that this uncertainty is still hanging in the air. No one is saying this is a done deal. Trade tensions have been erased. They're still high on everyone's mind. Everything seems very uncertain and still up in the air. And so, you know, these forecasts for lower growth than were initially expected, um, calls for potential fiscal stimulus to keep the economies going if they have to. That's what people are talking about, and not not the wins from the trade war that the Trump administration or the, the government in the UK may want to um, champion. So it's still a lot of risks out there is, is, I think, the bottom line. And Sarah, remind us what's coming next. We got through the October 15th, October 18th. Next is December 15th, right? What do we know about the tariffs that will be hitting in about two months from now? So, you know, this phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal that the U.S. announced, uh, you know, they're still hammering out a lot of the details of that. And so we know that there's a lot of talks coming up by phone. Uh, and then Trump, of course, wants to sign this about mid-November at the APEC meetings in Chile with um, President Xi Jinping. And so if, you know, if that happens, I think those December 15th tariffs, there's a chance those could be, um, you know, part of the package of, of having this deal signed, sealed and delivered between the U.S. and China. If they can't reach a deal, it, it really seems like it's full steam ahead for those De- December 15 tariffs. And, you know, that's going to come right before Christmas. That's going to hit some consumer goods. And I think, you know, a deterioration, a rapid deterioration of the trade war will be um, absolutely in the cards from then. All right, we're going to leave it there. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone from those IMF meetings happening in Washington, D.C. So one piece that caught a lot of attention on Wall Street this week was the story in Vanity Fair by Bill Cohen, very well-known former Bloomberg Opinion columnist, we should note. And it was all about, quote-unquote, chaos trades. Well, it perked up some ears, some eyes, and some chatter across our newsroom and across Wall Street. Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter and the host of the What Goes Up podcast, she wrote a story about it. She's here with me in New York City. Hi. Hello. All right. So break it down because this went, it really sort of bounced around via social media. I'm guessing via a lot of Bloomberg terminals as well. Give us the context and then the reaction. Right. So this is a story out of Vanity Fair that went absolutely viral. I mean, we had two Democratic representatives even today send a letter to the CFTC, SEC, and FBI urging them to investigate what this piece in the Vanity Fair magazine actually talked about. So what Bill Cohen really laid out was instances in which you saw giant block trades of S&P 500 futures, which are known as E-minis, at coincident times before different events. Now, when you think of different events, uh, some of them included different tweets or announcements over U.S.-China trade. However, 
two of them were on different topics. So one of them was actually related to Hong Kong politics, an announcement from Carrie Lam, and then another was from a drone attack on Saudi oil fields. So what Bill Cohen is saying was that there are traders in the pits of the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, who called them up and said, hey, there's hanky-panky going on, there's something really fishy going on, you need to do something on this. This is strange. Uh, but when you talk to people on Wall Street and when you really dig into the details, um, I, people aren't really so sure that uh, the evidence is substantiated. And Sarah, talk to me why they don't think the evidence is substantiated. Because you talked to a lot of experts who said, frankly, this doesn't feel like insider trading. It doesn't feel like front running. Why? Well, first of all, if you actually look through the article and you look at the trades that he is talking about, typically they mention trades that are worth a couple dozen, I mean, a couple uh, tens of thousands of E-minis that are traded, then resulting in profits off those trades that are either hundreds of millions or in one instance, even over a billion dollars. And if you actually look at the tape, there's a way to look at different trades and see what the size of trades that are being placed and how they're being passed through. You don't see trades of those size. Now, what Cohen is trying to make the point is that his traders at the CME that he spoke to are saying different trades were made at the same time. They add up. So they come through as different trades, but they look like one trader. And everyone else on Wall Street is saying that's absolutely not the case. I mean, he even did talk to a representative from uh, the CME, and uh, that spokesperson at the CME said that the trades in question did not originate from a single source and they were of no concern. So if you take that into account, if you don't believe that these trades that passed at different moments, or even at the same moment, but came through separately, aren't the same person, you can't come to this conclusion. All right, what did Bill Cohen say? So Bill Cohen said that he still absolutely stands by his reporting. He says that he trusts his sources absolutely they have decades and decades of experience and he was just being repertorial people came to him they said look this looks strange you should report it he said i want to get it out there because at least it's something that the sec sec should look into but going back to the question mark that has been raised i mean if you just go back to the point of him uh, he, it's actually the lead example that he talks about um the one about the drone attacks on saudi arabian oil infrastructure a lot of traders are like well if you really wanted to make a profit on that why would you go through s p 500 futures why wouldn't you just make a direct bet on oil futures right. It, right. it doesn't it doesn't add up all right well it's a really nice piece of reporting and you know sort of taking you to the heart of how these stories tend to as we described sort of bounce around uh, Wall Street. It is a very provocative piece in Vanity Fair, worth reading, and then also worth reading uh, this nice story by Sarah Ponzak and Nick Baker, two of our market experts. And check out Sarah and Mike Regan's podcast. I mentioned it at the top. It's called What Goes Up. This week, they're talking about the well-performing Jamaican stock market. This is a follow-up, I believe, Sarah, to some reporting, some really tough reporting that your co-host did uh, about a year ago down in Jamaica. Is that right? Mike wants another reason to go back to Jamaica. Yeah. It's, we're starting to get, to get into the winter, so he just had to bring it back. Yeah, it's so. funny how that <laughs> tends to happen, right, yeah. as the weather is starting to turn here <laughs> in New York City. All right, Sarah Ponsack, thank you so much. All right, well, a lot of Americans clearly have been distracted by all of the political 
turmoil, machinations, drama here in the United States. There's been quite the drama brewing just north of us in Canada, Taylor. A big election coming up, and Justin Trudeau, who just a few years ago arguably is one of, if not the most famous politician on the planet, He's in a little bit of trouble. Ethan Bronner is senior editor for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Joel Weber is, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. So, Ethan, I turn first to you. What's happening with Prime Minister Trudeau? Well, he's fighting for his political life, Jason. I mean, it's uh, very impressive because only a few years ago, as you said, he was extremely popular. I mean, he brought unprecedented numbers of new voters to the polls four years ago to win uh, with an extraordinary election. So basically what's happening is that there was this sense, as far as I can see, of kind of falling in love with him and then finding that he wasn't quite the date one had hoped for. <laughs> That's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> uh, so so the, the election is really between uh, conservative leader Andrew Scheer and uh, Trudeau. So what's that? What's the campaign been like between the two of them? Well, it's really been all about Trudeau. That's what's so interesting about it. It's been Scheer's assertion that Trudeau is a hypocrite and uh, an entitled guy who sort of dresses his family up on the family dime when they go abroad, who berates uh, his own attorney general, all the while claiming to be a feminist and an ecologist and so forth. So it's really been focused on him with Andrew Scheer basically saying, look, I'm your regular, ordinary guy. And I'm going to bring us back, though. He does talk about pocketbook issues, which are an issue up there, even though, in fact, there was 3 percent growth in the last quarter. The the economy has done very well. But like in many places, Canadians are nervous. That's actually one of the more more interesting things. And I know uh, Matt Winkler wrote for Bloomberg Opinion yesterday about how dynamic the Canadian economy has been. So what, what, what are the dynamics at play here for Trudeau? Because he does sort of have the economy, economy at his back. So what are the main sources of headwind for him? So, I mean, the biggest problem is, as I said, that he had brought all these people who really kind of swooned about him. He is handsome. He is very media savvy. He is the son uh, of a legendary prime minister, Pierre. The anti-Trump, and, as Businessweek once said on the cover. The anti-Trump, absolutely. And, you know, one of the, the kind of... The, the standard bearer of liberalism globally, as many, many countries turn to the right into populism. But the sense that he is not quite what he promised to be has uh, the big fear, I think, for his party is that people will simply stay home. And, well, and the, 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 the five million people who vote for the conservatives on each election cycle will be there. So what will happen to those who came out in big numbers uh, for Trudeau? And I think that's the big challenge they're facing. Ethan, it remind me sort of what happened. Part of me wonders if expectations for Trudeau were just set so high, it almost seemed like anyone was bound to fail. Were there so many policies, so many goals that he wanted to do that, frankly, the bar was just set too high? I think that's absolutely right, Taylor. I mean, the question, though, is did he do the bar setting too high? And I think those who have been critical of him would say, yes, he and his image makers they did too good a job of setting him up essentially for failure, that nobody could live up to it. Uh, and also, the thing is, when you, there's a sense of virtue signaling and so forth that people have been upset with, and the feeling that he has this entitlement to him, which, mm. you know, whether true or not, I'm, I'm not here to say, but there's that sense 
that this is a kind of, as someone said to me for the story, we are a Presbyterian culture. We do not really like it when people get too big for their britches, and we like to pull them down a notch when that happens. So what's interesting about that, though, is that Shear, his opponent, um, isn't entirely Canadian. <laughs> Correct. He, he also has American. an American. He has, a, he has an American passport. That's uh, you, right. And he failed to mention it until a newspaper pointed out a few weeks if, ago. If that so were in America right. and it was a Canadian, I feel like it would be a, a deal breaker. And yet it's not been for Sheer, from what we can tell so far. That's true. Again, I, I mean, from what I can see, as I say, the 5 million or 5.3 million people who vote conservative every four years will continue to do so. That's a very, very solid block. And it's an odd comparison, but it's almost like the sort of Trump voter, right? That you can count on them. They will get out there and do uh, what they've done. But but that's right. He, he has also been seen to be not quite who he claims to be. But on the other hand, all the spotlight has been on this other guy who, you know, with all the flash and brilliance and the sense that, well, goddamn, we're not going to be uh, put over on one more time. We're going to abandon him. But I don't, I mean, I would say that the, broad uh the, the broadest analysis is that he will squeak through trudeau mm. will squeak through and likely form uh, a minority government necessary well when you say he's not exactly who he is give me an example sure so um one example is that uh i mean he's been twice um reprimanded by the ethics commission of the government once uh, for having uh, taken his family to the private island of the aga khan and the Aga Khan is an old family friend, but he has a big $200 million project uh, that he might have wanted to talk to the prime minister about. And so it was sort of inappropriate. There's also uh, the time when he uh, pressured his attorney general, who's a woman uh, and an in, a member of the indigenous community, uh, to not do what she thought she should do legally uh, mm -hmm. with uh, a Quebec-based company. So he was seen to be mansplaining in that case, the guy who claims to be a feminist. That's the kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, most recently, although it didn't have as much effect in Canada. I know exactly what you're going to say. States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the brown face and black face. Right. And, and so why did that? My interpretation of it was that it didn't really hurt him in the polls. Whereas, again, that's another thing that in the U.S., you just know it. It probably would have tanked someone. So what happened? Why, why didn't it well, take him? I, I, I would say a couple of things about that. First of all, there's only a 4% black community uh, in Canada. The sense of blackface as a sort of a sub explicitly racist act is less clearly established in its culture there as here. Uh, also, as a liberal who's done a lot for indigenous communities and for immigrants, uh, he is somewhat immune from criticism of racism. And I think the other thing is that it sort of fit into a sense that he wasn't quite who he said he was rather than, oh, my God, he's a racist. Right. Nobody really thinks he's a racist. It's that he's kind of a slightly goofy dude who dressed up, you know, at a party. Right. By the way, he was a teacher at a state school at the time, and nobody else complained at the time. The picture appeared in the yearbook. So you do have to put it into the broad cultural context. He wasn't alone. Right. So we'll see if it matters, right? Yeah. October 21st, this is Monday, this election yeah. goes down. We'll, we'll know what happens. We'll all be watching, and this is a really nice primer for it. Ethan Bronner, senior editor for Bloomberg. He wrote this story about Justin Trudeau and that upcoming election. He joined us from New York City, as did Joel Weber here in our studio. He is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I am secure.
been Tom Petty's 69th birthday, if I'm not mistaken, if uh, Twitter is telling me the truth. So nice to hear him as our walk-in music here to our conversation with Dimitri Sirota. He is the founder and CEO of Big ID, uh, based between here and Israel, here in New York and Israel. The company splits its time. He probably splits his time between New York and a lot of airplanes, I believe. Dimitri, great to have you here in New York with me and Taylor, who's out where they talk a lot about what you do, which is consumer data privacy. This is incredibly of the moment and a great week to talk to you, especially given Mark Zuckerberg at Georgetown yesterday. Why are we talking so much about this right now? Uh, You know, I think people are getting tired of it. And I think when people get uh, frustrated, I think regulators, legislators um, get tired of it. When we started the company three and a half years ago now, uh, it wasn't as topical. I Mm -hmm. think uh, it was discussed uh, on occasion. But as we were getting going, we knew that there was going to be some new privacy regulations in Europe. And I think the belief we had, myself and my co-founder, who's out of Tel Aviv, that this was going to become um, something that everyone was going to be talking about, whether it was Europe, U.S., Asia, Latin America. And that's what we're increasingly finding. So, Dimitri, what are you and I guess more specifically Big ID doing to solve these privacy issues for for businesses? Sure. So there's no one solution fits all in privacy. I think um, myself and my co-founder, our backgrounds are in security. So we take a security centric approach to privacy, which really starts with the data. We believe that um, uh, individuals want greater transparency in terms of how their data is collected, how their data is processed, how their data is shared. And that obviously echoes some of the new regulations like California consumer privacy. And the reality is that there isn't very much technology in the marketplace that helps companies become more effective stewards or custodians of the data they collect, process, and share. And so we felt there was a gap in the market when we were getting going, and we felt that there were going to be there was going to need to be a greater capability to help uh, enterprises uh, do that. And that's uh, how we started Big ID. And so you had a recent announcement teaming up with SAP. That feels like a big deal, and feels like a true, real validation of of what you're doing and a big opportunity to really spread this far and wide. Yeah, 100%. Look, I think as this is my third uh, startup. I had two previous ones in the security space uh, when I was living in Canada. I think it's you're always looking for opportunities to build brand and obviously reach more customers. And given that we cater to global multinationals, SAP is a tremendous partner. Sure. So they put a little bit of money into us um, uh, a couple of years back when we were just getting going. Uh, and I think over time that translated into a relationship where now we're going to be on the price list and we'll have um, the scale of SAP behind us. And Dimitri, how do you think about regulation? So, of course, here in California, you talked about the California Consumer Privacy Act. We talk about big federal regulation. Is that good for your businesses because you or for your business because you can help businesses navigate that? Or is regulation making your job harder? No, we, so for any security business, and there are many companies that focus on the identity, endpoint, network security, different different places, uh, regulations have historically assisted. They provide tailwinds. So if you look at something like Sarbanes-Oxley, which many of your audience will probably be familiar with, you know, I think passed in 2006, 
that gave rise to a whole ecosystem of companies in the identity and access space, of which several have gone public, like Okta and Ping more recently. Um, and in some ways, in the early days, they had a tailwind. They had um, budgets set aside because of the regulations. And in a similar fashion, I think, the privacy regulations, be it GDPR, CCPA, or the other 14 states that now have draft bills in the U.S., um, really creates a forcing function for companies to think about and then act on uh, on those thoughts. All right. So as you mentioned, you're something of a serial entrepreneur, investor, mentor, advisor, uh, I believe. So where does this company or where does this space sort of go from here? More consolidation coming? Is that the sort of period that we're in or the part of the cycle we're in? You know, I don't think consolidation happens this early in a, in a period. Okay. This is a fairly new market. Um, GDPR only came into effect a year ago. Right. CCPA is not even the law of the land yet, uh, and it's one out of 50 states. I think there's emergent regulations around the world. So this feels, and again, using the Sarbanes ex example, you know, 12 years on, you have a $200 billion ecosystem in the identity and access space that you could argue emanated from this kind of single event, this kind of big bang, if you will. Mm -hmm. So consolidation isn't going to happen for a long, long while. I think in the meantime, you're just going to have a greater amount of VC investment into the space. Yeah, it certainly feels like there's a lot of money uh, headed this way. All right, we're going to leave it there. Dimitri Sirota, founder and CEO of Big ID, here with me in New York City, certainly in a very important part of the market. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with Jeff Kravitz. He is Regional Investment Director for U.S. Bank Wealth Management. He joins us on the phone from lovely Scottsdale, Arizona, where people will start to migrate even more, I believe, Jeff, as the weather starts to get crummier and crummier here on the East Coast. So give us a sense of how you're feeling about the market right now. It's been... Overall, a fairly positive week, but today, obviously, a little trickier as we try and digest geopolitics, trade, etc. Uh, what do you see weighing the most out there? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, today, we are treading water in the market, and that's because investors are a bit nervous about the Chinese slowdown, and they have increased anxiety about how the trade war is going to unfold. So what's you know, the big focus for investors and what we're focused on are third quarter earnings, which uh, recently kicked off and got off to a good start. And then we're going to have that Fed meeting at the end of this month. But all in all, you know, if you ask us, what are we telling our clients? We have a more neutral stance, not overly bearish or overly bullish. We're advising our clients to stay invested with their current asset allocation just because there are so many cross currents in the market. And Jeff, how has earnings season been for you, sector by sector basis? Who have been the star performers? So far, you know, coming out of the gate, we haven't really had a, a lot of earnings, but we've seen the financials uh, do well and uh, some consumer discretionary. What's going to be very telling is technology. 
technology is really a key sector. It's the biggest part of the S&P 500. It's a sector that we like. And what's going to be instructive there is what we hear with forward guidance, with regard to forward guidance. Is the trade war having an impact on uh, corporate uh, spending, CapEx? Uh, those are going to be some very important issues. And also, how is the consumer holding up? Well, you know, Jeff, I sort of jokingly uh, talked about where you are versus where I am. I know you spent some time in New York City as well. And, you know, when we're talking to people who are outside of the bubbles, candidly, that Taylor and I live in, she in San Francisco, me in New York City, you know, we do want to get a sense of, I jokingly just said to Taylor as we were messaging back and forth, sort of cactus level in your case, like, what are people talking about? You know, you're talking to customers there in Arizona uh, who are, again, sort of outside maybe the Acela Corridor or the Silicon Valley madness. What are they worried about? What's their view of the economy right now? Well, their view of the economy is overall positive. I mean, you, you drive around, the housing market's quite good, people are spending, the consumer seems strong. But what we're hearing from our clients is there is concern about where we are in the market. We're 10 years into this bull market, we're close to all time highs, and clients are a bit nervous about whether or not there's still steam left in this. Uh, continuing expansion. What we're telling them is, is yes, there is. Um, you know, the economy is slowing down, but it's still still positive. Um, strong consumer sentiment. Uh, unemployment's very low. So as long as we have the Fed uh, kind of in the court of uh, of uh, the economy and investors with low rates, that's a good story. And we don't get too hung up about all the volatility with regard to uh, trade and the trade tensions. Well, Jeff, you're a CFA charter holder, so you know all about that conglomerate discount. Then you mentioned tech, and I fold that into wondering if there is a regulatory discount being applied to all of these tech companies that are facing increasing scrutiny from Washington. Do you see stocks that are undervalued given a, quote, regulatory discount? We're not focused too much on that. Um, that's a very unpredictable uh, tack to take. I mean, that that kind of takes the tack of you know what's going to who's going to be the next uh, president. Uh, what's the administration going to look like on the uh, the um, Senate and the House? So that's that's a bit hard to handicap. Um, with tech, what we're really you know focused on is are these tech companies um, growing their businesses? Do they have compelling uh, solutions for for consumers and businesses, and can they deliver? So it looks like a lot of these tech companies, um, despite their valuations of being you know fairly high, are delivering um, those types of uh, solutions, and and consumers and companies uh, seem to be. To, to seem to be signing on with regard to uh, to new software and new hardware. We're talking with uh, Jeff Kravitz out at U.S. Bank Wealth Management in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Jeff, I got to ask you, as you start to rank the geopolitical worries out there, 
Brexit may be off the table, may not be off the table in terms of a concern if we get through the weekend, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, Obviously, Turkey and Syria was something that maybe a lot of us didn't anticipate that has very much been in the fore over the last couple weeks, the sort of broader Middle East region, U.S.-China trade, everything else going on. What do you worry most about at this point? Well, the biggest geopolitical issue right now is still trade, um, because trade really does have an impact on corporate psychology and spending. And I did see uh, something from the, I believe it was the IMF that said the trade wars that are going on now could knock off as much as uh, 0.8% of GDP, global GDP. So the question is, if things get worse and continue, can the negative impact from trade pull down the world economy into a recession? Now, we don't, that's not our base case. We don't believe that recession is in the cards here in the U.S. And we do believe that ultimately this will work itself out. But it, it becomes a very difficult thing uh, to trade around because trade, uh, as you know, the, the news out of trade is so fluid and pushes right. markets up and down. So right. that, would, that would still would be the biggest uh, geopolitical issue that's uh, unfolding. All right. Makes sense. And we'll uh, keep a lot of what you said in mind as we get deeper into earnings season as well. Our thanks to Jeff Kravitz. He is Regional Investment Director for U.S. Bank Wealth Management. He joined us on the phone from Scottsdale, Arizona. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.